The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. afternoon Raleigh and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's September 21st and the time is 4.04 and on behalf of the team here at WKNC I'd like to thank you for tuning in. On the last day of summer I am Nick Weaver and I'm Marissa Jordan. Coming up we've got Jake Winner's Snowberated. This week he reviews the film Mustang. As per usual Nick brings you his modest mouth review. This week he reviewed the album Pins from Spain by Locke Lomond. Ricky Dows brings you her opinion segment. Today, she comments on Zendaya's casting in the new Spider-Man film. But first, Brooke Yanyan brings you Arts Afternoons. This week, she interviews Blair Donahue, a creative writing MFA, that is Master of Fine Arts, as we discussed earlier. Now, uh, I don't know anything about Blair. Uh, I believe she'll be talking about uh, her poetry, maybe? Yeah, her uh, creative writing or poetry. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. So stick around for that. We've got that coming up right now. Hey, KNC listeners, this is Brooke with Eye on the Triangle. Thanks for joining us with Arts Afternoons. Today I have with me Blair Donahue, a creative writing MFA Mm -hmm. here at NC State. Thanks for reading with us today, Blair. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into writing? Uh, Sure. I've actually always told stories, although I was too young to actually know how to write. So I would have my uh, parents write down the words for me and... uh, kind of increased ever since then, although I did not know I would be going to school for it. I didn't want to go to school, so I've now, I'm have now i now in my second master's program, so I guess I was wrong about that. <laughs> Quite a turnaround. Yeah. Not wanting to be a student, to being... Not at all, yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're reading for us today? Uh, sure. It is called The Future Is Now! Exclamation point. And essentially, it is a survivalist story. It's set in these um, old missile silos that have been turned into survival condos for the wealthy. And they think the world is ending. Cool. Quite, what, dystopian, kind of? Yeah, almost there, but... All right. Whenever you're ready, I'll let you give us your excerpt. Bartending at Ryan Incorporation's luxury survival condominiums was an easy job, and Abby should have been happy to have it. Abby should have thought herself lucky, too, having beaten out 1,800 other applicants. Abs, we're seriously, like, so lucky to work here, Brendan had said. Brendan was gorgeous and ethnically ambiguous, and unfortunately for Abby, gay. Abby also hated being called abs because she had none. Or she had some, sure, but they were far from discoverable beneath what she considered to be layers of fat. Being called abs only reminded her of this. Abby was of slightly above average weight and above average attractiveness. 
Brendan, on more than one occasion, had told her that if there was one woman he was forced to be with when the world ends, at least it's her. This was after Abby had broken down for the third time that month. Brendan found her hidden beneath the bar and surrounded by a group of overprivileged drunks on the first floor of the old Atlas F missile silo, under the glass-clear, nuclear-resistant, tornado-proof dome. Brendan had stroked her hair, thick and black and glossy, the way he'd often done since they'd been working at the survival condos. The world won't end, Abs, he'd said. Brendan's hand slipped into hers. Abby's mind let it slip elsewhere. And the sunlight here looks so real. For real, look, you can't even tell the difference. Abby wasn't worried about the world ending. Hers, although it took her a few months to realize it, already had. What Brendan and the rich folk didn't get was that she'd been trapped here long before the first bomb struck and the shelter went into lockdown. For two months before that, Abby couldn't leave the condos at all. Staff was limited and housing expensive. The job was a lucky one because staff got to stay in a 150 square foot flat for free. Because of this, it was too expensive to employ anyone who wasn't essential. Abby was considered essential to the functioning of the silo turned survival condos. Plus, a one bedroom condo cost two million to buy. How could Abby not consider herself lucky? She even made a nearly non-existent stipend, which was also lucky considering she would survive the end of the world. Or at least she would for five years, because that was all the freeze-dried food and oxygen and water the silo could support. This was easy to forget while mixing drinks beneath the gray-filtered light of the silo's tornado-proof dome. Just a week ago, Abby used to be able to see a distorted collage of the outside through the layers of polysumod carbonate and glass and whatever else impenetrable material the dome consisted of. But after the bombs, a layer of dust had settled over top. Abby figured it was probably better like this anyway, not being able to see the outside. Still, most of the residents spent their time up here beneath the dome, lying out on the beach by the pool, absorbing fake sunlight, eyes closed, face down toward the earth, perked buns at the ready toward the sky. If they had any kids, they dropped them off at the daycare next door to the island-style bar so they could return to their lives. Abby would stare at the mounds of butt, trying to find imperfections. A dimple of cellulite, a black wire, a pubic hair, tampon string, camel toe, anything. Then she'd drift over to Brendan in his 1970s style swim trunks. She didn't often find men's legs attractive. She'd actually prefer they kept the hairy, awkwardly proportioned things covered up. Brendan, however, seemed perfectly formed. Almost too perfectly. Except he wasn't that smart. Plus, Abby reminded herself of the other impossibility between them. He was gay. Matt Lauchs leaned over the bar and slipped his sunglasses down the bridge of his nose, looking up at Abby with gray-toned eyes. He was younger, in his late 30s, which grouped him with the women of the silo more than the generally older men. He chewed gum constantly so that the joint beneath his ear balled up like the muscle in a horse's jaw. Abby wondered if Matt realized the resemblance, always ordering a horse's neck as some poorly constructed joke, one that she didn't quite understand. Matt smiled at her, still chewing, so that the blue wad of gum at the back of his right molars could be seen with each bite. Abby's job was considered an easy one because Abby tended bar before she entered survival training for the condos. She'd started off with an unfruitful bachelor's degree in history, then an even less fruitful master's in sociology, which made her less money than slinging liquor for tips. Still, she wondered, hosing ginger ale into a glass tumbler, maybe it would have been more rewarding. Zach from college went on to work for the state as a social worker. He loved his job, specializing in saving kids. Hope, that was what he'd always talked about. The potential cure for the disease of the current generation, just like Abby was supposed to help suppress the symptoms left from the generation before her. 
Abby dripped some bitters into Matt's drink, grabbed a lemon, and carved off a twist of rind with her little knife. That was beautiful. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah, that, of course. Like the third-person perspective, but that close characterization of Abby was really amazing perspective in the story. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. So... Thank you so much for sharing with us, Blair. That'll sure wrap up our session today on Arts Afternoons. Thank you guys for listening. When Captain America Civil War came out, the part that everyone loved the most was seeing Spider-Man back in Marvel's capable hands. And after Tom Holland killed his performance, Marvel immediately made plans to start shooting Spider-Man's solo movie. Not much about the plot has been revealed at this point. The movie isn't set to release until a little under a year from now. However, Marvel has confirmed a good bit of its casting. And one casting decision in particular has got comic book fans crying for their safe spaces. Originally. Actress and singer Zendaya was rumored to be cast as a girl named Michelle, one of Peter Parker's classmates. Now, sources are saying that she's instead playing the iconic role of Mary Jane Watson. Looking at the internet's outrageous reaction, you'd think we were in the 1950s. Under the articles that announced Zendaya's role were comment after comment on why a black girl couldn't and shouldn't play Mary Jane. The comments ranged from accusing Hollywood of being too politically correct by casting a token black to saying that changing Mary Jane's race is disrespectful to the original character. Some commenters even went so far to say that a black girl can't naturally look realistic with Mary Jane's iconic red hair. Really? I mean, if we're talking natural, why don't we talk about Kirsten Dunst's dye job in Tobey Maguire Spider-Man? This is only one instance out of so many where the public didn't take too well to a dramatic change in casting. It was announced that in the new Harry Potter play, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, that Hermione would be portrayed by a black actress. And even though J.K. Rowling herself expressed that she never specified Hermione's race, some people just refused to accept the casting decision. Then Ghostbusters announced a reboot with an all-female cast. Twitter fingers flew as fans of the first two movies complained that Hollywood wasn't being true to the original casting. When Thor came out in 2011, there was outrage that Idris Elba would be playing the role of Heimdall, a character who had been white in the comics. Elba commented on the criticisms, saying that a movie with superhero gods and flying hammers has more implausibility issues to focus on than his skin color. And I think that's what a lot of people are forgetting. These are fictional characters in fictional worlds doing fictional things. I mean, I get just as immersed in my favorite movies as anyone else, but we're literally watching a movie about a boy who got superpowers from a spider bite. Are you... Really worried about a black girl with red hair seeming unnatural or unrealistic? What's more, race shouldn't really matter when it comes to fictional characters. As far as I'm concerned, as long as a story doesn't have any historical background, the way a character looks is open to interpretation. Unless race specifically affects the storyline, or if the movie's a biopic, race doesn't define a character. Like... Don't cast Morgan Freeman as Abraham Lincoln or 
George Clooney as Martin Luther King Jr. But, you know, I wouldn't be mad at a white Nick Fury. Oh, wait. Been there. Done that. And can we get over the idea of a token black or token Hispanic or token Asian for that matter? I hate that people automatically think Hollywood is making a politically correct move for casting a person of color in a role, especially if they think the character is supposed to be white. Don't insult an artist's livelihood and boil it down to nothing more than a political statement. They went into the audition just like everyone else and read a script for a character. Why isn't the automatic assumption that the actor was just good at portraying the character and that they didn't get the role based on how they look? It's not the 1980s. Hollywood doesn't need tokens anymore because there are too many talented people of color in the film industry nowadays. Check them out sometime. Who knows? You might just be impressed. Spider-Man Homecoming is set to release in July 2017. I don't know how Zendaya will do, but I do know that the Marvel Cinematic Universe hasn't let us down with casting before. I, for one, will be in the theater opening weekend to judge for myself. Unlike the trolls of the internet, I'd like to see her performance before I decide if she's a bad call. But hey, that's just what I say. Do you agree? Have a different opinion? Let me know and I'm happy to listen. Until next time, this has been Ricky Dows of Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Welcome once again, everybody. Today's album on the chopping block is Pens from Spain by Locke Lomond. Now this band actually has a very special place in my heart. Note that that does not mean I love them unconditionally, or even watch for new albums from them. I just have a certain familiarity with them, so to speak. Well, I'll elaborate on that in a minute. First things first, as always, who are Locke Lomond? Basically, Locke Lomond is primarily the project of lead singer Richie Young. Started in 2003, Locke Lomond was Young's solo project that grew with each album to be a full band with a rotating lineup of multi-instrumentalists. You may recognize the name from the 2014 animated film The Box Trolls, which they scored a good portion of. The band could be described as fitting in the genres of indie folk, indie pop, and indie rock. For this album, they've stuck pretty hardcore to indie folk with a touch of indie pop. Now, to explain why this band is special to me, flashback to the year 2012. Up until that point, sophomore and high school me only had really ever listened to two types of music, classic rock and grunge. Nirvana was king and Queen was queen. Side note, I was only mildly into Queen, I did that purely for the pun. Nonetheless, the time was ripe for me to start broadening my listening interests. Early on in the year, for the first time ever, I heard the traditional folk song, Loch Lomond, sung by my choir at school. 
I immediately fell in love. The first thing I did when I got home that day was look up 30 different arrangements of the song. Then I looked up rock versions. I found a band called The Real Mackenzies, thus beginning my love affair with Irish and Scottish rock, but that's a tale for another day. I wanted more. Cue to about a week later and someone introduces me to a wonderful website called Pandora. For those unfamiliar, the website lets you plug in artists, songs, or genres to create randomized stations with similar music. The first thing I entered was Loch Lomond, but funny enough, Pandora showed me an artist instead of a song. So I clicked it out of curiosity. Immediately, I was blown away. Never before had I heard anything even remotely similar to this genre of music. I remember distinctly the five songs I would play on repeat by Loch Lomond after I heard them for the first time. Wax and Wire, Blue Lead Fences, Ghost of an Earthworm, The Earth Has Moved Again, and Witchy. They were all beautifully orchestrated, deeply emotional, and at times incredibly catchy. These songs have stayed with me to this day. Despite being blown away by those first five, however, I never really went on to listen to any of their albums in full. This was in part because I was still avoiding other forms of music streaming and in part because they were hard to find. Lock Loman at the time and to this day doesn't have a particularly large audience. At any rate, that one Pandora station led to many others and many more discoveries of amazing music. Basically, my entire musical taste exploded from just that one chance encounter with their band name. So now they're at that funny place where they're not one of my favorite bands, but I love them to death anyways. To add to this, I haven't heard anything from them in a few years, so I don't have much to compare this album to in terms of their prior catalog. But with that all said, it's time to finally go over what I think of it. To start off, a staple of Loch Lomond's sound that hasn't changed with this album is the frequent use of orchestral instrumentation. And their preferred lineup of instruments are cellos, violas, violins, guitars, and very rarely trumpets, also relatives of the xylophone. And I think they've also used a harpsichord a few times. The percussion on this album is much less accentuated, with only very light tapping serving as the drums for most songs. I'd like to say they're using a pair of bongos, but I'm not positive. Other times, there's either a normal five-piece drum kit doing light percussive work, or no form of drum at all. The main focus of most songs on Pens from Spain is on the orchestral and ambient swells from the string section, composing a very fluid touch of classical influence mixed with modern songwriting practices. When the orchestral sections are not in the spotlight, the listener is very clearly intended to be drawn in by Young's unique harmonies. Another signature feature of Log Lomond is Young's use of multi-tracking, providing a falsetto and bass section alongside his natural vocals somewhere in the tenor range. In essence, Young provides the warmth of a full quartet by himself, with background vocals provided only occasionally by an outside female vocalist. I wouldn't say they're a hipster band, but you can definitely tell that Log Lomond hails from Portland, Oregon. They've got that kind of unique, free sound. The sound of experimentation. And Pins from Spain is just that, a beautiful, emotional experiment. The blend of folk, classical, and indie merges very well. It helps that the band has been at this for many years and pretty much has the formula down at this point, but I don't think they're at all afraid to try new things. This album caught my attention for its use of subtle electronic ambience and percussion. You have to listen closely around the midpoint of the album, but a couple of songs utilize an almost EDM-sounding beat. Softly and in the background, but electronic nonetheless. It's not a perfect fit, but it's interesting. Now, for my opinion of it as a whole, what do I think about Pins from Spain? Well, I like it. I don't love it, but I wasn't expecting to. I don't need for everything they do to appeal to me. Loch Lomond has my love no matter what. The album isn't perfect, but it's a polished work of beautiful orchestral indie folk. Sure, some of the songs are a little too funky and Young's verse has drone a little bit now and then, but as a whole, this album is incredibly beautiful and thought-provoking. And for what it's worth, as always, the lyrics are very relatable. 
Young has a way with words and music that can at times be unparalleled in its ability to connect with you deep down. When I first heard Witchy all those years ago, it gave me words for a feeling that plagued me every day. While this album doesn't have that same depth to it for me, maybe someone else will tap into it. I'm absolutely certain someone will. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give Pens from Spain a solid positive 3. It's not amazing, but it makes me feel all warm and bubbly inside all over again. I highly recommend this album to fans of indie folk and or bands like Kishibashi or Arcade Fire. That second one may throw some of you for a loop, but trust me, there are similarities. Once again, the album is Pens from Spain by Lock Lomond. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Plesk, Meerkat, Floatstar, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Mustang. Mustang is a Turkish film directed by Denise Gamze Gerven. The movie shows the life of five orphan girls who live with their grandmother and uncle. The story revolves around the girls' rebellious actions and follows them as they are moved through the conservative culture of Turkey. As with any foreign film, culture is always a main interest of mine. I look to see how the culture functions and whether or not the film is representing the majority of that country. For example, if someone were to look at a movie like The Town, which is filmed in Boston, and assume that was what Boston was like in general, they would have a very skewed idea of that city. While crime is definitely a present in Boston, what is shown in the movie is far out of the normal range of activity. It's important to realize this when watching films from other countries. Because almost certainly, the representation you see will be a dramatization of real life. Another aspect changed by the film being a foreign one is the language. Translation is never perfect, and some aspects of a movie in foreign language will always be mistranslated in some way or another. Maybe the context isn't quite right, or the grammar is incorrect in English. This affects how native English speakers will perceive and receive the film. The filming of this movie was well done. They often took advantage of their setting in showing the happenings of the sisters. They used trees to obscure faces when running in the woods, and in the house when they were chasing each other around, they show the girls running in a circle through a door into the hallway and a door between rooms. This accentuates the setting of the house and creates an interesting visual instead of having the normal chase down a hallway that they could have had. At another moment in the film, the girls are sent down an alley to be away from their relatives while they are served at a restaurant. This is a very awkward situation for the girls. 
And the filming shows that by looking down the alley toward the relatives, creating distance between them through the eye of the camera. It also is mainly looking down towards the girls at this moment, which sort of is also like a way of saying like you're looking down, the audience is looking down, so you're sort of embarrassed. The film had a warm but bright feeling in terms of color through the movie, which in many ways contrasted the story. They set up setting scenes during the evening most often and almost all others during the daytime, not taking too much advantage of natural lighting, but using it effectively. The house they filmed was sizable and nice, which also contrasted the situation the girls were in. This was most likely a choice of representing the culture correctly instead of being a symbol, though. The movie altogether seemed a little disjointed. There were almost too many characters to keep up with, which is what makes me question the five girls' choice. They never really focus on any one of the girls for a long period of time, and instead sort of represent them as a unit and follow them individually at different points. The youngest girl is allowed for the longest in the film, but this is really just an effect of the older ones leaving as they are moving on with their lives. She could be said to be the main character of the film, but I would not say she is the only main character. A lot of what doesn't make sense to me about this film, to me, may come from a lack of cultural understanding of Turkey, but it seems there are two sides of the culture. There are very conservative people who still believe in arranged marriages and wives as almost household workers, and then there are those that are educated and free to do what they want. The conservative culture for the girls was oppressive, as they did not enjoy living within it, and it actually felt like the rest of the people in the village felt that the girls' situation was very odd as well. The story basically followed the girls as they were locked up and assimilated into a culture they had no wish to be in, but didn't show this happening in a very understandable manner. It focused too heavily on their actions and not enough on the emotions that the girls had. Of course, they did show some distress and acting out, but it all seemed very childless and only on the surface. This could be in part due to the performance of the actors playing the characters, but the characters really didn't seem alive throughout the movie. Mustang shows how this group of five orphan girls growing up in a culture they detest fight against it. I found the story to be an interesting cross-section of the culture, but it lacked emotion needed to carry you through what should be a completely emotional journey. I have watched other foreign films and have been engaged, but this one was not able to seal the deal. I'm going to give this movie a 2.5 out of 5. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. If you have any suggestions or comments, feel free to call in during the show or send us an email at publicaffairs at wknc.org. I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.30, and I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver. For the weather, for most of this week, it's going to be partly cloudy with scattered thunderstorms Sunday through Thursday, which is going to be great because I sure do love some murky, disgusting weather. Uh, Today, Wednesday, the 21st, the high will be 75 and the low will be 69 with scattered showers all day. For Thursday, we're we're looking at a high of 80 and a low of 69 with rain. Friday, high of 84, low of 66 with partly sunny skies, so it'll be a little bit better. Saturday, high of 88, low of 66 with sunny skies, finally. Sunday, high of 79, low of 63, and with cooler temperatures coming in just in time for the first week of fall. Yay, spooky, scary skeletons all day long. I'm super ready for fall. Favorite month, or 
season by far. Yeah, it's a season. I want to get some pumpkin pie. It's going to be great. So now we have on this day in history for our history buffs. Uh, in 1780, Benedict Arnold commits treason. And in 1792, monarchy is abolished in France. In 1917, during World War One, the Central Powers respond to the Papal Peace Note. Know anything about that? No idea. <laughs> it just sounded important. No idea. <laughs> 1792, monarchy abolished in France. Boy, I bet heads rolled for that one, huh? Da-da, Good one. Uh, but as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winners, Brooke Yenayon, and Ricky Dows. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver, wishing you all a great Wednesday afternoon.